Can popes retire? You bet they can. That's today on Footnoting History. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Nathan, and welcome to this special edition of Footnoting History. So, unless you've been living under a rock for the last few hours, you've probably heard that Pope Benedict XVI has announced that he will be resigning his office effective at 8 p.m., February 28th, after which the College of Cardinals will be convened to elect a new pope. Now, if you're anything like my Facebook wall and Twitter feed, about half of you are wondering if a pope can actually resign or retire from office. Now, the short answer to this question is yes, um, but I'm a historian, and this is footnoting history. We believe in long and complicated answers. <laughs> There's actually a very long, though admittedly somewhat sparse, history of papal resignation, and these resignations are almost never without scandal. The very first papal resignation occurred in the 3rd century, when Pontian was basically forced to abdicate in 235 because he had been arrested by the Roman Emperor Maximinus Thrax and kind of pressed into a mining chain gang on the island of Sardinia. Now, I deliberately didn't call him Pope Pontian because that honorific had not been invented yet. And, well, yes, I'm being pedantic, but I do have a point here, and that's that Pontian was simply Bishop of Rome. This was a powerful and influential position within the Christian Church, but it wasn't head of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, at this point, there isn't a Roman Catholic Church, because the formal split with the Eastern Christian Church, or the Orthodox Church, doesn't take place until the 11th century. The next pope to leave office, we're not entirely sure about. Uh, pope Marcellinus possibly abdicated in 304, but we don't have a lot of evidence for his papacy. We do, however, know that Pope Silverius, who was himself the son of a pope, and papal children really do deserve their own episode, he was forcibly deposed by the Byzantine general Belisarius in 537, um, ostensibly because he colluded with Gothic invaders. More likely, it was because he opposed the Empress Theodora, uh, who, let me assure you, was no paragon of virtue. Either way, he was stripped of his office and forced into exile, which I suppose isn't actually voluntary retirement, which is what we're talking about. For the first true voluntary resignation of office, we have to go forward to the 11th century, to Pope John XVIII, who abdicated in 1009 for reasons which are largely unknown to us. Uh, the next pope to abdicate was Pope Benedict IX. He became pope in 1032 as a teenager, which, you know, is obviously a bad idea. Benedict really wasn't liked by anyone. Uh, because at the time, Rome was involved in some deep infighting between rival families and their factions, not entirely unlike a mafia war. And so there were a lot of uh, rumors flying around Rome that he had had people murdered and he liked to uh, have orgies. So kind of acting how you would expect a teenager to act. In short, Benedict was forced out of Rome twice, abdicated so that his godfather could become pope, uh, was forcibly reinstated, and then forcibly deposed and excommunicated. And yes, popes can be declared excommunicate. More on that in a second. The first papal resignation about which we know something and didn't involve gross misconduct or political intrigue was Celestine V. Celestine reigned as pope for less than six months in the second half of 1294. 
Now, the story of how he becomes pope is kind of how, why he abdicates. The previous pope, Nicholas IV, died in 1292, and the chair of St. Peter lay vacant for over two years. Um, this status of uh, no pope is known as sede vacante, uh, means empty chair or empty seat in Latin. Celestine's real name was Pietro del Morone, and he was a poor peasant farmer's son who went on to become a poor Benedictine monk. Celestine really just wanted to be left alone, and he was in fact an ascetic hermit, and before he became pope, he founded his own order, uh, later called the Celestines, based on being very poor, not eating very much, and living a quiet contemplative life. And this is what he did up until the age of 85. But then his life radically changed. You see, during that two-year period of sede vacante, the College of Cardinals had been meeting off and on trying to elect a pope. Now, you would think that this would be fairly easy because there were only 11 cardinals. Well, when we started this process, there were 12, but one had died in the interim. But no, no dice. So the cardinals were at their wit's end. Uh, the king of Naples, Charles II, even tells them, get your act together and elect a pope already. But there's still no consensus. And that's when Pietro, the ascetic hermit who liked to be alone, decides that even he's had about enough of this, and he sends a letter to the cardinals saying, will you please just make up your mind already? The church is suffering. At this point, the cardinals look at each other and say, you know, why don't we make this guy pope and promptly elect Pietro? But Pietro didn't want to be pope. In fact, he refused to become pope, and according to Petrarch, he went into hiding just to avoid it. But eventually he relents and is invested as Bishop of Rome in August of 1294. The thing is that Celestine, uh, this is the name that he took as Pope, again, he really, really does not want to be Pope. So he does a couple of things. First, he doubles the size of the College of Cardinals, the body that elects the Pope, and he packs it with supporters of Charles II, uh, again, King of Naples. He approves then the rule for his own order, the Celestines, and issues a decree stating that popes are allowed to resign. And then he turns around and immediately takes advantage of his own decree, and he resigns in December of 1294, having been pope for maybe five months at that point. However, he wasn't allowed to live in peace, because then, as now, a lot of people weren't happy with the idea of a pope resigning. And so his successor, Boniface VIII, who was quite a piece of work himself, he feared this would cause a rift in the church, and he threw Celestine in a tower, and he kept him there until Celestine died in 1296. I mean, you really have to feel for this guy. He didn't want to be pope in the first place, and then whenever he tries to resign, he just gets thrown in a tower by his successor. Which brings us to Gregory Twelfth, who voluntarily abdicated in 1415 to fix what was maybe the biggest disaster in the history of the Catholic Church. You see, the problem began about a century earlier, when the court of the papacy was moved from Rome to Avignon in southern France. The reason this happened was because Celestine's successor, Boniface VIII, the one who threw him into prison, got into a bit of a dominant male monkey power struggle with the king of France, Philip IV, who I'll be talking about again in my podcast on the Cathars, Templars, and Siege of Montsegur in a couple of weeks. Basically, Philip kept messing with the church. Boniface told him to stop. Philip said, yeah, who's going to make me? And he accuses Boniface of simony, which is the purchasing of clerical offices, uh, heresy, sorcery, and homosexuality, among a number of other charges. And he attempts to have the Pope taken by force from Rome. Boniface is captured, but eventually rescued. However, uh, this experience created such deep psychological trauma that he died a few weeks later. Uh, his successor, Boniface XI, lasted less than a year, and then his successor, Clement V, was French, 
and Clement basically caves to Philip. It is under Clement that the seat of the papacy is moved to the town of Avignon in southern France. This naturally makes quite a number of people rather upset. Um, many of them were Italian. It remained at Avignon for the better part of 60 years, until 1378, when Pope Gregory XI attempted to move the papal curia back to Rome. Uh, this is due in part to a lot of people, including Catherine of Siena, nagging him to death until he did so. Anyway, so Gregory shortly dies after returning to Italy, and the Roman mob virtually demands that the College of Cardinals elect an Italian. They don't want any more French popes. The man that they elected, Urban VI, um, was from a small town just outside of Naples, and Urban wasn't terribly diplomatic. He even threatens to pack the College of Cardinals with Italians to ensure nothing like Avignon could ever happen again. This really pisses off the French cardinals, who had been enjoying a series of fancy dinner parties and lively Templar marshmallow roasts at the Papal Palace in Avignon for the last several decades, and so they promptly elect their own anti-pope. So for the next 30 years, there are two popes in Europe, each soundly denouncing the other with endearing names like Antichrist and Mocker and Destroyer of Christianity. Finally, in 1409, a council is convened at Pisa to try and sort of sort out this whole mess. Naturally, they wind up electing a third pope, who promptly excommunicates the other two and anyone loyal to them, and vice versa. And so, for the next five years, there are th three popes in Europe, and everyone is very, very confused about who the actual legitimate pope is. This goes on until 1414, when the German king and future Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund decides that he's had enough, and he convenes a church council at Constance in what is now Switzerland. When the council convened the next year in 1415, France and England were at war again, with Henry V preparing to sail across the English Channel to destroy the French at the Battle of Agincourt, uh, thus ensuring Kenneth Branagh gainful employment in 1989. The population of Europe was still recovering from recurrences of the plague, and, oh yeah, there were three simultaneously excommunicate popes. A very long, very complicated story short, it took them another two years to resolve this issue, and the end result was that the Roman Pope, Gregory XII, and the Pisan Pope, John XXIII, voluntarily abdicated so that the council could select a new pope, Martin V. The Avignonese Pope, Benedict XIII, absolutely refused to abdicate, and he maintained that he was the true pope until his death in 1423. So, in answer to the question, can popes retire? Again, the short answer is yes. But isn't the long answer much more interesting? This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week, when we'll be talking about Henry II and the accidental invasion of Ireland. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week! <laughs>